I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending August 2nd. We want the Internet of Things to be smart, but being smart requires processing power, which will be lacking in millions of IoT devices. It's what we call in the business a conundrum. But there may be an answer. You'll hear what that is. As we reported last week, the biggest companies in the world are beginning to compete with their own chip suppliers. The latest example is Alibaba, which just released a high-performance processor of its own design. Alibaba's move is significant for technological, financial, and political reasons. We'll look into that. Also, you'd think that the people building autonomous vehicles are using sound design principles. Those with IT background who have grown up in the culture of famous move fast and break things don't necessarily do that. They tend to go for alternate approaches. Alternate approaches. (laughs) You are going to want to hear the rest of this. We'll get to that in a minute. First, the Internet of Things is going to lead to a world that is smarter. We'll be installing sensors farther and farther away from data centers along highways to make driving safer, into farm fields to monitor how our food grows, into remote areas to track weather patterns, and much, much more. Adding intelligence has always meant adding more processing, which also means drawing more power. But the vast majority of devices we install in these remote areas, at the farthest edges of the network, will, by necessity, lack sophisticated processing capabilities and will be very low-powered. How to reconcile that? Sally Ward-Foxton is one of our correspondents in London. She keeps on top of trends in artificial intelligence for EE Times. In a recent story, Sally wrote about a group of researchers looking into ways to distribute AI at the network edge. They call their approach to machine learning TinyML. International correspondent Junko Yoshida caught up with Sally. Let's go back to the basics here. I want you to explain what's TinyML and what is it for? So TinyML stands for Tiny Machine Learning, um, and not just mm-hmm. for edge devices, but for devices at the very edge. Uh, so machine learning's already in edge devices. If you have the Facebook app on your phone, you're already doing machine learning inference on your phone. Uh, so what we're talking about here is machine learning at the very edge. So something like ultra-low power sensor nodes, uh, gadgets that use energy harvesting, or situations where there's barely any power available at all. As far as defining TinyML, in the recent meeting of the TinyML group, one of the speakers, Evgeny Gusev from Qualcomm, uh, he defined TinyML as machine learning approaches that consume less than a milliwatt. In Qualcomm's experience, he said, a milliwatt really is the magic number for applications in a smartphone that a cluster's always on. So under a milliwatt is what we're aiming for. And there'll be a whole ecosystem springing up around this application, but it's really still emerging right now. Right. So we are here talking about how best to enable ultra-low-power machine learning, not just on smartphones, but all the way down to the sensor node. So I just want you to break it down. Is this a matter of streamlined framework for training, you know, to make this tiny ML possible? Is this a matter of a framework or some sort of a new technique we're talking about here or simply a new low-power hardware that we need? 
So there are techniques that we use today in machine learning for reducing power. Uh, we can do things like quantization, where we reduce mm -hmm. the precision of the numbers that we use in the model uh, to make the model more efficient. Um, yeah. Uh, in the tiny ML meeting, one of the Google engineers, Nat Jeffries, spoke about cascading models. Uh, so where instead of running one large model, model, he broke it into three smaller models. So say for yeah. speech recognition, uh, the first model might just be deciding whether there's any sound happening. And if there is, that activates a second model, which decides whether that oh. sound is human speech. And then that triggers the rest of the model, which is more power hungry and so on. So only a small, low energy part of the model is running unless it's needed. And that can save lots of power. So rather than doing everything in one shot, that you are truncating the AI process in several different parts. Is that it? Exactly. Yeah. Kind of like uh, when we used to talk about ultra low power microcontrollers and only waking up certain parts of the device as they're needed to save power. Yep. What about software and hardware? What sort of inventions or the new development or improvements are needed to make this ultra-low-power machine learning possible? So, yeah, in terms of hardware and software solutions, these are definitely still emerging. Google's working on building a version of TensorFlow for microcontrollers. There's already a version called TensorFlow Lite, which is primarily right. for mobile phones. They're adapting it for microcontrollers. On the hardware side, there's several specialist companies working on ultra-low-power accelerator chips. At the tiny ML group meeting, there was a presentation from Greenwaves Technologies based in France. They've developed an eight-core accelerator that uses RISC-V. They reduce the oh. clock speed and the core voltage to get it to run on barely any power. Wow, that's interesting. So in your story, you wrote industry discussions of how to proceed with ultra-low-power machine learning was overdue. And um, I couldn't agree with you more on that one. But Sally, give me your take. Where do we stand and who in the hardware and software space are leading in this effort for the ultra-low power machine learning? I think there's certainly a feeling that new applications are being held back because the hardware isn't there yet and the software frameworks are not there yet. Uh, Google's mm -hmm. really taking the lead on this one. They've clearly identified this as something important that they want to pursue with TensorFlow Lite. Uh, but yep. then on the hardware side, I think microcontrollers definitely have the edge at the moment. They are just totally ubiquitous. All these ultra-low-power sensor nodes we're talking about, they probably have a microcontroller in them already. It's a mature technology, relatively cheap. Everybody knows how to use them. And Google's backing microcontrollers as well. Uh, so microcontrollers just have a massive advantage, really. That's not to say it'll always be the case. Specialized hardware might make some inroads, uh, but overall, mm. I think the microcontroller will be very difficult to unseat from its prime position. The Greenwave speaker, Martin Kroom, he said yep. that things are moving so fast uh, that for specialized chip companies, the danger is they end up being really good at accelerating what everyone was doing last year, which is obviously <laughs> not good. Uh, so retaining a bit of flexibility for future machine learning algorithms, that might be the key there. Last week, EE Times launched a series of articles, what we call a special project. The series explored the various ways the biggest companies in the world are remaking the semiconductor industry. They include Amazon, Baidu, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Correspondent Nitin Dahad's contribution to our hyperscaler special project was about how the big internet companies are beginning to compete with their own IC vendors. The day we published the package as if on cue, one of the hyperscalers, 
Apple bought Intel's modem business, an acquisition that will have far-reaching repercussions through the semiconductor industry. Apple used to be a big modem customer of Qualcomm's. That's now likely to change. That same day, another hyperscaler, Alibaba, announced it had designed its own new processor. Here are Nitin and Junko Yoshida again to discuss the very many ways the new processor is significant. Nitin, you were part of this theme, but we at EE Times just last week launched a new special report focused on hyperscalers' impact on the semiconductor industry. Given that internet platform giants are getting into a host of vertical business segments, which, by the way, includes their own chip designs, um, how significant do you think Alibaba's move is, you know, Alibaba's move to design its own chips? Tell me your take. Okay, yes, Junko. Um, so just to recap, as we highlighted in the special report and on EE Times On Air last week, many of the large internet platform companies, and these include Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Alibaba, and Google, they're increasingly getting impatient with existing roadmaps and timelines from the semiconductor industry and going the do-it-yourself route uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, Alibaba's move to design its own chip is part of this trend, and I think you'll probably talk about this a little bit later. It's, It's also strategic. It's also significant for China since it addresses the country's ambition to be more self-sufficient in semiconductors as part of the Made in China 2025 initiative. So in effect, this is symbolic both for China and for Risk Five. Got it. Actually, um, as I uh, briefly mentioned before, over the this past weekend, I had an opportunity to quickly catch up with Xiaoning Chi. Uh, he's a vice president of Alibaba Group. Um, he was previously the CEO of Seasky, uh, who developed their own homegrown uh, 32-bit microprocessor uh, for the embedded market. So Xiaonin's team has chops to do various chips, but what they're doing now under the umbrella of Alibaba, it's quite interesting to me. And uh, when I talked to him, he said, you know, the, this Alibaba's uh, chip group doesn't plan to sell the newly designed RISC-V chip. Rather, it, it tends to offer what he called chip templates for other companies. Uh, so my question to you is, um, what is the performance of this RISC-V chip and what are the target markets for this? It's actually uh, absolutely right what he says. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to sell their own chip platform for and release parts of the code as open source on GitHub to stimulate related development. So really, this is an enabler of RISC-V development in China. Uh, as you say, it's not, they're not trying to sell their own chips. And um, as regards performance, Alibaba claims a major breakthrough with the, what they call the Zuan T910 chip, which they released last Thursday. It said it's 40% more powerful than any other RISC-V processor to date. Wow. It, uh, just one uh, stat, and you can read the rest in the article, but um, it achieves 7.1 core mark per megahertz at a frequency of 2.5 gigahertz on a 12 nanometer process node. What they're doing is they're targeting really high-performance applications, both in infrastructure and at the edge. So artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, 5G, and autonomous vehicles. And they've said this specifically in the announcement. They're saying the whole 
for example, um, artificial intelligence IoT market is fragmented and there's no universal chip solution, what they're trying to do is enable this development and through Risk Five and open source, but also get that high performance. Wow, that is very ambitious. But you know, I'm not surprised when I think about how strategic Alibaba's decision was uh, uh, back in a couple of years ago when Alibaba decided to pick up SeaSky as part of uh, the group. And I think from the get-go, uh, they did have intention to get into the semiconductor business. But I think throwing risk five in, it kind of changed the game a little bit here, especially in the context of China you briefly mentioned before. So do you think this illustrates China making deeper inroads in risk five, Nitin? Uh, yes, Janko, it's definitely that, but it's beyond this as, as well. And to look at it in more context, uh, China's semiconductor and consumer electronics industries really needed some kind of boost following the ongoing trade war with the US. You know, first you had um, the actions, uh, sanctions against ZTE, mm. uh, uh, and then yeah, the current ongoing saga with uh, banning Huawei, well, yeah. more correctly, putting it on the entity list. Right. So more specifically related to RISC-V, this is huge news. A major player in China has developed a homegrown, high-performance 16-core RISC-V chip. 40% more powerful than any others to date. This is hinting at both a leadership position yep. in risk 5 yep. as, well, as well as, and this is the important bit, less reliance on access to chips and other risk architectures developed by, you know, say, US and European companies. Uh, as one analyst said to me last week, yeah. uh, sorry, not to me, he said, um, with this chip, uh, Chinese companies don't have to rely on a supplier like ARM or Intel there's now no threat ever of them losing access to a key part of their design. For months, Junko has been investigating autonomous vehicles and vehicle safety. This week, she did an article that looked at the fundamentals, the methodologies that various automakers have developed to design safe vehicles and to validate those designs. It turns out that some of the new electric car startups are running thousands of miles of what they call road testing, without ever being on the road, which is a valid approach in combination with real road testing. The problem is that nobody knows if they designed their software models correctly. There are no standards. There aren't even any common metrics. Worse, it's all a big secret. Car companies don't share their safety design data with anyone. That means no one can check their work, and there's no way to tell if it's valid or garbage. Furthermore, Car companies don't share their test data either, which means they can't benefit from each other's safety research. When did safety become a proprietary issue? It's all shockingly disorganized, and it's no wonder that car companies keep pushing back the date when autonomous vehicles will be ready for the road. Cruise had promised to introduce its robo-taxi service this year. Last week, it just finally acknowledged it isn't going to make its deadline. The real wonder is why any car company ever promised autonomous driving in 2019. What are they thinking? I asked Junko about that. So there are the traditional car companies, the Fords, the BMWs, and then there are a bunch of new startups, the, um, you know, Biden and, and Tesla. And the two groups, what we're discovering is that they operate 
completely differently or very differently. Uh, the startups all come out of the electronics industry or most of them do. And so they're fast and they're nimble and they're smarter than the traditional car companies because they're fast and nimble in their electronics. And then there's the traditional car companies that are big dinosaurs and they're dragging their heels on electric vehicles and they're slow and they're doomed because they just can't keep up with the startups, right? Well, that's that's too simplistic a view of the autonomous vehicle <laughs> industry, Brian. But sure, there are tech companies which do nothing but developing AV software stacks, right? And there are car OEMs who design both traditional vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think what we need to be aware is that uh, there are a lot of interminglings going on among them, you know, through mm -hmm. partnerships and acquisitions like Ford and Volkswagen, I think earlier this month, uh, for example, just uh, became, uh, you know, equal share investors in a company startup called Argo AI, this is the autonomous vehicle startup based in Pittsburgh. So there, so there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, partnerships going on right now. It's a lot of technology. It's a lot of new technology. There's electric vehicles, there's AI, there's self-driving, there's the, uh, the it's a big, big technological set of uh, problems and challenges that have to be uh, set. And it doesn't look like any one company can really take them on, all on, not Tesla, not Ford, right? Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's true. And, you know, I think we should be cognizant of this. Uh, you know, there's certain mm. cultural difference or lack of institutional memory on the part of the tech startups. You know, they often mm. lack the disciplines in vigorous design and engineering, I think. You know, for example, traditional aircraft, train, automotive designers first build rigorous mathematical models and apply formal mm -hmm. verification to validate that the system design matches the original specs. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, those with IT background who have grown up in the culture of famous move fast and break things don't necessarily do that. They tend to go for alternate approaches. So listen to what Jack Weiss, the Intel's Vice President of Autonomous Vehicle Standards, told us in our recent interview. The alternate approach would be, hey, I've, built, I've just started writing code immediately. Didn't do any formal design, didn't do any design verification. I've got a pile of code and I'm just going to test it and iterate, test, iterate, test, iterate, and then try to gather statistical evidence to convince me that the thing is safe. And that's why, oh, I've driven 10 million miles. I've driven 100 million miles without an accident. Okay, so that means that means it's safe, right? Well, I don't know, because you haven't actually verified that the design is safe. What you've yeah. done is just gathered statistical evidence that this pile of code that I've got actually seems to work. So it tries to give you more confidence, but it's not a sound approach. So such an alternative approach is a stock departure from a traditional design process under which you formally define the vehicle architecture and design of the algorithm on paper first. The important thing here is that you must formally verify them. As Intel's mm -hmm. Reese told us, it's, uh, 
you know, take an example, an airplane, right? You design an airplane, mm. for example, you know it's going to fly from a physics standpoint because you've <laughs> proven that it will fly. You know, they just don't put the airplane out there. Does it fly, right? <laughs> so you can right, prove yeah, that exactly. on paper. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're talking about trains, planes, cars, um, you're talking about things that there's a, a life critical element to it, right? Yep, yep. And, and it versus like, uh, you know, designing a Fitbit or, or a PC, <laughs> you know, you, you can reboot a PC. You can't yeah, right. reboot an airplane, right? Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the fundamental thing going on here. Yeah. So right. we've had cars for a hundred years, but when you add autonomy, it's a different thing all of a sudden. And, and adding autonomy to a vehicle kind of makes it less safe, at least at first, right? Um, can I get you to explain why that is? Yeah, I, I guess I have to break this down in two parts here. Because mm. on one hand, ADAS, as you mentioned, a, you know, Advanced Driver Assistance System, mm. is great because a feature like automatic emergency braking can get you covered to avoid a Ford crash with uh, another vehicle, you know, for example, right? I mean, that's what AEB does. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when autonomy becomes more advanced, like level three cars, in which the driver can take eyes off, that's when things get complicated. You know, although level three car is designed to do most of the driving, Mm -hmm. drivers are still required you know, the driver needs to be prepared to intervene when called upon by the vehicle to do so. Because the vehicle is going to get involved with things that it hasn't seen before. Right. It's going to get, get, right. get, get confused, ask the you know, driver, hey, take, it, take, take, take over now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, this is a real human machine interface issue. It's huge because... You might have been texting until that moment, or you must have. You might have been emailing somebody, and then you're suddenly told, "Hey, take over." You know that's is really unrealistic in my point of view, right? You add autonomy, mm-hmm. more autonomy. Human drivers get used to it. You know they get right. bored and they can't stay alert all the time. It's a human nature, and that makes driving highly automated vehicles less safe, I think. Right, right. So you've got a design for that in the beginning. So we've been discussing how this all starts with design and test and verification, but that process isn't really all the way through the automotive industry when it comes to autonomy. What do you think the basic problem is? Yeah, I, I, I believe that biggest issue of the autonomous vehicle industry, AV industry today, Comes to comes down to one thing, lack mm-hmm. of transparency. I'm sure you know Waymo is learning a ton of stuff while racking up miles and miles by testing their robocars on public roads, right? So are mm-hmm. other AV companies like Uber and others. They must be all individually looking for extreme cases that will make the you know automated uh, vehicles unsafe or ineffective. If that is the case, shouldn't they be pulling that data to design tests for validation? You know, as one of the uh, astute EE Times readers actually pointed out in our comment section today, saying this, what we don't hear from the AV crowd, he said, mm-hmm. is, you know, 
what would typically be called as a requirements document. You need that requirements document to identify as many use cases and failure points as a requirement. Then research and design a feature that mitigates that risk of failure mode, right? There is no such documents at at this point in time. But first thing first, you know, as Phil Koopman, he's the CTO of Edge Case Research, you know, he uh, strenuously told me that at minimum, at minimum, AV companies mm-hmm. should be publishing safety metrics to demonstrate that they are operating safely before test cars hit the road. Are, are there any basic uh, requirements, basic metrics that the uh, auto industry has agreed upon? Not yet. Uh, that, that, uh, None. <laughs> Isn't that shocking? It's a shocker. It's uh, a real shocker. That, that's not encouraging. <laughs> I know. Yeah, not, not the, people, people say that they're working on it, but not at this point in time. So it kind of makes sense then <laughs> to me after hearing that, yeah. that the introduction of robo-taxis yeah. and, and autonomy in vehicles yeah. is getting pushed back. These guys need time to deal with all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, on the other hand, and I've had this argument over and over with other people, if autonomous vehicles are going to be safer than humans, even if it's only like 10% safer at the beginning, shouldn't we just force everyone to get, get those autonomous vehicles out on the road, force everybody into autonomous vehicles as soon as possible? And, and okay, maybe a <laughs> traffic death toll goes down only maybe like 10% at first. But, but eventually, traffic deaths will get cut maybe in half or even more. Um, just Just – you know, roll with it. Just, you know, start it all, just get it going already, right? <laughs> well, that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? Especially in the United States, I think, asking drivers to give up driving is like, like, you know, asking people to give up their guns. You can't, you can't force everybody to switch to autonomous vehicles. Actually, I really hate yeah. the argument of take the human out of the equation you can never take the human out of the equation, right? No. Uh, even driverless cars need to deal with cars driven, regular cars driven by human, human, human drivers on the road where the human pedestrians cross in streets, right? So you can right. never take the humans out of the equation. Life is unpredictable. You can, you know, a technology is really good at predictable stuff, but the default situation of reality is it's unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So as long as there's human drivers mixed in the roads with automated vehicles, there's going to be accidents. Period. So I don't want to sound too old-fashioned, but you know what our cities need, really, in my opinion, is that it, it, if they are really serious about reducing fatality, is what we need is public transportation. You know, not autonomous vehicles. Onward into the past a rundown of important events in tech history that took place on dates from the past week. On July 29th, in 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act. It officially created NASA. On July 30th, in 1898, the Winton Motor Carriage Company of Cleveland, Ohio, placed an advertisement in Scientific American, advising readers to dispense with a horse. It appears to have been the first car ad ever. 
The vehicle was priced at $1,000, but running it cost only about a quarter of a penny per mile, uh, presumably cheaper than the horse. On August 1st, In 2016, NHK started regular TV satellite broadcasts of 8K television. No one was selling 8K TV sets at the time. Viewers had to congregate in front of public viewing stations. Also on August 1st, this time in 1981, MTV signed on the air, the first 24-hour stereo video channel. The first song ever played on MTV was this one by The Buggles. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending August 2nd. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. Be sure to join us next week for your August 9th weekly briefing on EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.